Does it sound like a plan? Well, what's the big emergency? There's no rush that I should play today. That's no fun. We can wait till tomorrow. Just relax. Okay. High school Satanism club prompts parental outrage. Students say lunchtime meetings do not worship Lord of the Underworld. San Mateo, California. See, there you go again with that California stereotype. A group of San Mateo high school students trying to stir up controversy formed a club based on Satanism, a religion typically associated with hedonistic philosophy and with the rituals of black magic. Oh, maybe they uh, want to join the Wiccans. The Wiccans aren't Satanists. Calling themselves the Satanic Thought Society, co-president of the club James Doolittle admits he originally started the club with his friend Matt Heaney to rile things up a bit. But now that the two juniors have studied the teachers of Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan, is that Anton Oivey? They say Satanism helps people to express themselves. It's Satanism's purpose to turn a man back into the natural state, not have him corrupted by religion, Doolittle said. The club does not worship the devil, he said, as some may think. In a flyer posted around the school, the club says its goal is to divide church from state completely. All right, I kind of like that club. The flyer also says the club's purpose is to make the community realize that Satanism is not the practice of resurrecting hate and violence through evil spirits, nor is it a cult religion wherein people worship a horned beast, symbolic of the leader of hell. LaVey started the Church of Satan in 1966 under the theory that Satan is not a supernatural being, but rather a symbol of defiance and rebellion against a conformist, God-fearing society, according to literature on the Anton LaVey website. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Well, what do you say? So uh, you're not very enthusiastic so far. What about Satanism? It's just, uh, you know, one of Satanism things. doesn't support hate for no reason, Doolittle said. Satan says it's okay to feel hate because hating allows them to love more. Huh? While the Church of Satan does practice rituals, he said the club will not be doing this. Furthermore, Doolittle stressed that the club is not about hurting others. We don't want people to associate us with any violence, he said. At the club's first meeting on Wednesday during the school's lunch hour, approximately 35 students attended. The club is about sharing opinions and views, said Associate Student Body President Joey Izzo, who attended the meeting and joined the club. The two students were successful in riling up parents as well as a few students. Pam Cachet said she couldn't believe when her 10th grade daughter told her it was announced on the school's loudspeaker that a Satanism club had formed. The parents I talked to are outraged, she said. Her 15-year-old daughter, Lorena Wadham, was equally offended when she heard about the club. I was completely appalled. I'm a Christian and I love God, said Wadham, who's a member of the school's Christian club. Oh, I see, so they can have a Christian club, right. but the Satanists are bad and evil? You bitch. Cachet said a group of parents and others in the community will be protesting the club at 1230 this afternoon in front of the Performing Arts Building. That's uh, Pacific time. What angers her the most is the school support of the club. It's just a negative that doesn't belong in the school, she be saying. But Principal Jacqueline McAvoy is quick to point out that under the Federal Equal Access Act for secondary schools, the school must allow this club to exist. In an email to 300 parents, McAvoy wrote that this law requires that schools allow a limited open forum for clubs. It also said the students in the club are not devil worshippers and they will not be performing rituals. These young men are really interested in the philosophical teachings of alternative religions, she said. Jan Westfall, president of the PTO, supports the, not the PTA, the parent-teacher organization, okay. supports the school's reasoning for allowing the club. I don't think we should tell kids what they can and can't learn as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, she said. While McAvoy said she's received calls from members of the religious community angry about the club's formation, Father Harold Snyder of Our Lady of Angels Catholic Church in Burlingham said, the First Amendment is behind these students. Let's face it, teenagers love to shock, he said. The best thing to do about it is not make a big deal. How do you like that? The good father. The good father made more sense than these other Christians. Yeah. Well, maybe some of them might become altar boys. I guess probably too old. Giuliani asked to execute bin Laden. Huh? In his new book, former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani wrote that he asked President Bush three days after the September 11 terrorist attacks 
if he could personally execute Osama Yamama bin Laden if U.S. forces captured him. I'm sure he thought I was just speaking rhetorically, Giuliani wrote, but I was serious. Bin Laden had attacked my city, and as its mayor, I had the strong feeling that I was the most appropriate person to do it. Giuliani is mentioned frequently as a candidate to head the new Department of Homeland Security being set up by President Bush in response to the 9-11 attacks. In an interview to promote his book, Leadership, due in stores today, Giuliani contends that many firefighters died at the World Trade Center because they ignored orders to evacuate, not because of lapses in training or communication. They weren't going to abandon ship, Giuliani said. Giuliani also said he expected to re-enter politics, saying another run for mayor was out, but campaigns for president, U.S. senator, or New York governor were possible. I've learned that you don't cut off options. I have no idea what the future will bring, Giuliani said. I think I want to go back into government again. Maybe it'll be appointed office, he said. The former mayor also said there's a good chance, a really good chance, that he and girlfriend Judith Nathan would announce wedding plans soon. Isn't that tweet? Aww. In the interview on Friday, Giuliani questioned two reports by management consulting for McKinsey and Company that concluded that poor organization, faulty radio equipment, and lack of training hurt the rescue effort. They don't know much of the things that happened, Giuliani said, of the consultants who were hired by the Bloomberg administration to analyze the responses of the Fire and Police Department. A McKinsey spokesman couldn't immediately be reached to comment Sunday, and a Bloomberg administration spokesman was mum. He declined comment. He said nothing. And speaking of that, World Trade Center discussed in secret documents, says CBS News. What's left of a building next to the former site of the World Trade Center site is to be, uh, was to be demolished. Now, when is the date on this? Oh, it was demolished yesterday, I see. Cracks and bulges were found in 89 Greenwich Street Friday and Saturday, and the building formerly home to George's Lunch and a men's salon was consequently condemned as unsafe and leveled. Meanwhile, a new controversy has arisen at Ground Zero. A collection, a collection of expert analysis and data that could help explain how and why the World Trade Center collapsed has reportedly been compiled as part of an insurance lawsuit in Manhattan, but the public may never see the information. According to the New York Times, the experts who amassed the information are forbidden by confidential agreements from discussing their findings. The material could be withheld if the lawsuit is settled before trial, prompting concern among engineers and victims' families that the confidential material may be sealed or even destroyed. We're obviously in favor of releasing the information, but we can't until we're told what to do, said Mathis Levy, an engineering consultant in the case. The Times says the material contains documentary evidence, including maps of the debris piles, as well as three-dimensional computerized images of the fallen towers. Rare photos and videos have also been collected. The information was gathered largely in secret as part of a lawsuit involving a group of insurance companies and Larry Silverstein, the leaseholder of the Trade Center property. The insurance companies say the hijackings constitute a single terrorist attack while Silverstein maintains that the two planes hit the Twin Towers in separate occurrences. Silverstein believes he's entitled to a $7 billion payment. The insurance companies say he should be paid half that amount. Silverstein and the insurers have spent hundreds and thousands of dollars seeking expert analysis about what caused the collapse. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which owned the Trade Center Complex, said in a statement that access to documents will be decided on a case-by-case basis consistent with applicable law and policy. In other words, like that. Don't hold your breath. Don't you think it might be important if we found out what it was, the uh, faulty construction, the whys and the wherefores of why the uh, towers both collapsed? No, they should keep it a secret. Okay, good. Well, we're in the right country for that, or at least you are anyway. You are. I know. 299 votes. The next vote will be the 300th on our poll today. Who was your favorite Dolphins radio play-by-play announcer of all time? I don't give a flying crap about the Dolphins. Uh, 88 people said that, 29.4%. Rick Weaver, rest in P64. Well, I tell you, he sure went fast, you know what? Uh-uh, no. I was thinking about that yesterday. 
He retired. He went off to Mississippi. He came back that day and said he was getting laid all over the place like crazy. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, he's dead. I think doing the games was keeping him alive. I see. Rick Weaver, 64. Bill Zimfer, 50. Mo Howard David. Oh, look at that. Look what just happened there. You I see, see that? Yeah, I see it. Phony votes, 50. And I don't listen to the games on I, Radio 47. I got 53 on mine, so. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, we got a feeding frenzy. I think Mo's been disqualified. <laughs> 10.57 at 5.60 WQAM. Summer's over. No more barbecues. No more vacations. Kids are back in school. So no more excuses either. Time to lose weight and do it the intelligent way. Just like little George said only moments ago, balance for life. That's the way to do it. You don't have to worry about eating all kinds of crap, about frozen foods and French fries and all the other garbage we were talking about, because they provide for you delicious food that's got all kinds of great ingredients, and that's good for you at the same time. And they give you three delicious meals, three gourmet meals, and two great snacks every day of your life. It comes in a little black sack. They deliver right to where you are. You can't beat the convenience, you can't beat the taste, and you can't beat the speed and the ease with which you'll lose that disgusting, debilitating fat that looks so grotesque and also is making you sick at the same time. So you're going to be full to the gullet because there's plenty of food. You'll never be feeling deprived. And just like the beast who's lost almost 60 pounds already, we think, on balance for life, you can lose it real quick-like. And they let you choose between two alternatives for each meal every day that you're on the program. Those are the only choices you'll have to make. No counting calories, no counting carbohydrates, no worrying about what you're going to buy in the store because you won't be buying anything in the store. Your little black sack will provide all the goodies you'll need every single day. So if you want to lose weight, the effective and the real way to do it, Balance for Life, will work for you. Just pick up the phone and call them today. Call 954-568-3229. 954-568-3229. Or visit their website at balanceforlife.com. My and local. This is Sports Radio 560. QAM. Will you fudge packing? Are you sick and tired of being overweight? Yes. Want to lose that big butt? Yes. Thunder thighs? Yes. Turkey neck? Yes. Arm flaps? Yes. Love handles? Yes. Double chin? Yes. And beer gut forever? Oh, yes. Well, now you can. With no dieting, no pill popping, and absolutely no exercising. Through simple hypnosis, the pounds will merely melt away. This revolutionary program, designed by founder Big Al Lumpkin, will train your brain to believe you're thin. Here's how it works. I put you under, I whisper my magic directly into your medulla oblongata. Now, you're still the same fat so you always was. You just don't think you is. Let me demo it for you. This here is Barbara. She is big. But after just one session with me, she thinks she's like Twiggy or something. Here, watch this. Hey, Barbara, what are you wearing to the beach today? My thong bikini. Ooh. I mean, she's got to be like 340. But in her head, she's 112. In reality, that's how much one of her ears weighs. Still not convinced? All right, meet Steve. He weighs in at 620. Hey, Steve-O, I'm digging a new trial. What's the waist size on them bad boys? 34, Big Al. Ooh. Try adding a zero to that fat boy. See, they just don't realize. Face it, the only thing that matters is that you feel good about yourself. So look, eat like a pig and then come see me. I'll whisper the old voodoo mumbo jumbo into your cellarum. And presto, you are a skinny mini. This program has not been approved by the FDA, NBA, or NRA. It may not be suitable for anyone with an IQ over 40. Testimonials were given by actual program participants who believe they are thin, but they are not. It's 11.01 at 5.60 WQAM. Take a look at that poll, baby. <laughs> 328 votes. Seldom in the history of our polls have we ever seen such a meteoric rise from mediocrity all the way down there at the uh, ass end of the pool, all the way up now close to the top. You notice that? Yep. 
I don't give a crap about the Dolphins, 90. Rick Weaver, 72. Mo Howard David, 65. <laughs> He's moving up like crazy, like wildfire. <laughs> Bill Zimmer, 53. I don't listen to the games on Radio 48. Out of 328 votes, of which about 275 are real. Maybe. Hey, listen, we'll go with the number, okay? Can you just see him up there in Boca sitting? I'm not sure. I'm sure he's not there. Huh? Oh, here's another vote. Here's another one. Yeah, I, I can't see that. He doesn't no. listen to this show anyway. Of course not. He doesn't listen to this show. He wouldn't be doing something as petty as that. <laughs> I mean, certainly not on the eve when he's planning on coming out and coming clean tomorrow morning on his show and admitting that he tried desperately to get you canned and threatened to walk out if they didn't fire your little stick ass. And, of course, about Carolyn and the Beast and the other people that he's, uh, you know, forced off of that show. Now, where do you get your information, by the way? Where do you get your information? <laughs> so, anyway. Train monkey. Miami airport screeners. Federal passenger checkpoint screeners begin work today at Miami International Airport's Concourse A. As the government takes a major step toward taking over security at one of the nation's highest risk airports. Travelers departing on any of the concourse's international carriers, such as British Airways or Grupo Taka. What? Grupo Taka? Ataka? I'm sorry. Will encounter tighter security from the 150 Uniform Transportation Security Administration screeners, <coughs> Federal Security Director Ed Guevara said. They'll get a lot more attention and people will communicate with them more as to what the screeners would like them to do, he said. What will be different is a higher level of professionalism and a higher level of security and customer service. For example... Screeners will ask passengers to remove their shoes, allow a wand to be passed over their body, or open their bags to be searched. They will be dressed in white shirts with gold TSA badges, blue pants, and black shoes. As its next move, the TSA plans to reconfigure the checkpoints at MIA's concourses to conform to the template first used at Baltimore Washington International Airport, adjusted for MIA space constraints. Construction is pending. Dade County permit, said Mark Ferrari, the airport's assistant aviation director for security. The same reconfiguration is expected at Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport. The TSA's passenger screeners in Miami International joined 93 baggage screeners who started their jobs last Tuesday, operating eight of the nine minivan-sized explosive detection machines previously handled by private contractors. About 400 passenger screeners have been hired, TSA spokesman David Stegman said. Other concourses will convert to TSA employees over the next several weeks. In total... 1,150 passenger baggage screeners will be needed at MIA. Nearly three weeks ago, 240 passenger screeners began operating at two of Fort Lauderdale's terminals. A total of 600 of these 675 screeners needed for Fort Lauderdale have been hired, but no date's been set to deploy baggage screeners there, they said. And it goes on and on and on and on as the Dog and Pony Show continues. And every time CBS or one of the other uh, news organizations does one of those checks, they find out. Well, we'll see. The news ain't been good. Oh, look at that. Moe's up to 68 votes. Oh! He's doing it. Here's an article from the Scotsman. Don't we love the Scottish? Sure. With their golf and their kilts, silly sock uh, stockings. Iran starts to see benefit of deal with the devil. In public, the Islamic Republic of uh, Iran has scowled at the United States' apparent plans to overthrow the Iraqi president, Saddam Hussein. However, a delegation of Iraqi Kurds who traveled to Iran over the past couple of weeks found that even Iran's most traditionally anti-U.S. institutions have accepted and exceeded the possibility of a regime change in Baghdad. Indeed, they appeared to relish the prospect of an end to Sodom who initiated a devastating eight-year war with Iran in 1980. 
The Iranians have some concerns about the post-Saddam Iraq, what kind of Iraq there would be, and the legality of removing a sovereign regime, said Hosiar Zabari, a top-level Kurdish official. His delegation held meetings last week with the powerful former president, Hashimi Rafsanjani, as well as the head of Iran's ultra-conservative Revolutionary Guards and the ministers of defense and intelligence. But deep down, they really want a change of regime in Iraq. They want to see the back of Saddam Hussein, Mr. Zabari said. They want to see his backside. U.S. troop deployments and President George Bush's vows to replace President Saddam's government have placed the region on edge. Governments and political groups in the region have been in a flurry of diplomatic haggling and military planning in northern Iraq, a semi-autonomous U.S. and U.N. protected area. Fears of war and instability loom especially large. The mountaintop town of Salahuddin, just north of the major city of Ibril, is where Masoud Barzani's Kurdistan Democratic Party, one of the two major groups governing Iraqi Kurdistan, has been busy preparing for an October 4th parliamentary meeting and wrestling with the implications of a post-Saddam Iraq. The Kurds were once fierce guerrillas, but they've lately laid down their arms, put on suits and ties, and engaged in politics to ease their neighbors' fears about a new Iraqi government. Relations between Turkey and the two Kurdish political camps governing northern Iraq nearly collapsed after two members of the Ankara government publicly suggested annexing this part of Iraq. Mr. Zabar says he's heading to Turkey next. We're trying to cool the atmosphere and tone down the media threats. Iraq and the U.S. cut ties following the 19th, or rather, Iran and the U.S. cut ties following the 79 seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. But the clerical regime of Iran is also no friend of the Baghdad government, which used chemical weapons against its soldiers at the end of that long war in the 80s. Iran quietly set out the 91 U.S.-led campaign to push Iraq out of Kuwait. They said, we'll wait. Kuwait. And speaking of the coming war, and it's coming whether you like it or not, Iraq war could cost up to $9 billion a month. Fighting a war with Iraq could cost the United States between 6 and $9 billion a month with preparing for a conflict and winding down after it, adding another 14 to $20 billion to the total congressional budget analysts said yesterday. The Congressional Budget Office report comes as U.S. lawmakers debate President Bush's recent request for authority to use force if necessary to disarm Iraq and topple good old Sodom. In the latest in a series of war cost estimates, some ranging as high as $200 billion, which have garnered attention on Capitol Hill in light of growing U.S. budget woes, the CBO said it could not assess how long any U.S. military action against Iraq would last and warned that any attempt to estimate its cost was therefore highly uncertain. But it said deploying U.S. forces to the Gulf region would likely cost between 9 and $13 billion, and bringing them home after the conclusion of hostilities would add another 5 to $7 billion. Fighting a war would cost six to nine billion a month, while mounting a possible occupation of Iraq afterward would cost between one and four billion dollars a month. Estimates of the total cost of a military conflict with Iraq and such a conflict's aftermath are highly uncertain, CBO Director Dan Crippen cautioned in a letter to U.S. lawmakers. They depend on many factors that are unknown at this time, he said, including the size of the actual force that's deployed, the strategy to be used, the duration of the conflict, the number of casualties, the equipment lost, and the need for reconstruction of Iraq's infrastructure, he added. Top Bush economic advisor Larry Lindsley recently estimated a war with Iraq could cost 100 to 200 billion dollars, but White House Budget Director Mitch Daniels later stepped in to label that figure as likely very, very high. In fact, maybe he was very, very high when he said it. Somebody's very high up there, no question about that. We're down there. Ken Bodie, remember Ken Bodie? No, Cambodia. Ken Bodie, a professor of broadcast journalism at Northwestern, was moderator of PBS's Washington Week in Review from 1994-1999. You recognize him. He's got glasses, Ken Bodie. Oh, uh, yeah. No. Pretty good reporter. Anyway, he writes in the L.A. Times today, CNN has anything is anything but Mickey Mouse. And no, I'm not going to play that bit. Ted Turner has to save the network from being swallowed by Disney, he says. Let's not bury the lead. It's time for Ted Turner to take some of the $2 billion that the Money Magazine say, uh, says he has and buy back CNN, endow it, and have it run as the all-news channel was conceived to be. 
CNN is once again being shopped around. In previous iterations, there was a prospective merger with CBS News or a takeover by NBC. This time, the rumor is that AOL Time Warner will spin off CNN and allow it to be absorbed by Walt Disney Company and merge with ABC News, the stepchild news division owned by Disney. When Turner initially agreed to sell CNN to Time Warner, Time's chief executive Gerald Levin called CNN the jewel in the crown. It turned out that Levin didn't know what he was buying. All he knew was that CNN had worldwide reach, that it was the network every U.S. newsroom tuned to, that it was the one Boris Yeltsin kept on in his office, Fidel Castro on in his kitchen, and Saddam Hussein in his bunkers. When President Clinton fired cruise missiles at Baghdad in response to Iraq's attempt to assassinate President Bush I, the White House had to call CNN President Tom Johnson to ask what had been hit. For working reporters in both companies, the Time-CNN merger seemed to promise a natural symbiosis. Two strong news organizations with worldwide reach. One television, one print was a merger that appeared to add value to both. Then the culture clash set in. A team of Time executives paid a visit to CNN's Washington bureau to examine the news acquisition. They found veteran correspondent Bruce Morton in his office, and the joshing began. When one of the blue suits from Time mentioned that they couldn't wait for the day when they only had to write 150 words, Morton replied, and at CNN, we can't wait for the day, or we have to do it only once a week. On the time side, once the bean counters and executives began to understand the vicissitudes of cable TV, oh, I love that word, Say and the, competi- the vicissitudes of cable TV and the competitiveness of the rating cycle, the joshing soon turned sour. One executive complained that Time sends out more Christmas cards than CNN had viewers. On the CNN side, there was a feeling that the new owners had no appreciation for what they did, which was cover real news worldwide at less cost than any place else in television. The culture clash morphed into a form of tissue rejection. Driving to work one day, I heard the news that AOL had bought Time Warner. Does NPR have it backward, I thought? Time must have bought AOL. Even at a time of the stratospheric rise of the dot-coms, was it fathomable that an Internet startup could purchase a worldwide publishing conglomerate like Time Warner? But it was true. It was true. And CNN was a small part of the deal, albeit advertised once again as a priceless part of the package. Now, like the rest of the NASDAQ overachievers, AOL stock is tanking, and the geniuses are looking to unload CNN. If they plan, the plan to merge CNN with ABC News goes through, CNN will become a tiny slice of the enormous Disney pie. Disney is one of those enterprises with a huge CEO salary and ailing market prospects. Last time Disney shares prices plummeted, company executives traveled to Washington to explain to the ABC News Bureau why it would have to sacrifice jobs to the corporate bottom line. Next time, it could be CNN producers and correspondents whose jobs are on the line. The core value of CNN is not duplicated anywhere else in television news. It's the network the world turns to when there's real news to cover, especially foreign news. ABC, NBC, and CBS already have responded to budget constraints by closing down foreign bureaus. If there's a major labor demonstration in Paris, all the footage of those networks looks to the same because they all buy it from independent contractors in Europe. CNN has news crews and correspondents on the ground reporting from 31 bureaus around the world. Tom Brokaw, Peter Jennings, and Dan Rather could gather for a quiet breakfast in a coffee shop of the Baghdad Hilton, and no one would notice if they were joined by Christian Amanpour. There would be 100 autograph seekers in five minutes, that bitch. If ABC News and CNR emerge, it'll be a major step to that great nirvana which we seem to be heading when all television news looks the same. Competition used to be considered a healthy thing in journalism, but with this deal, there would be less of it. Isn't that what I said the other day when that story came out? Yes, you did. Disney's accountants would quickly find cost savings by closing competitive CNN ABC bureaus in Beijing, London, Moscow, perhaps even Washington. Ted Koppel and Nightline would find a new home at CNN. Then when Disney stock slides again, the rest of CNN's overseas bureaus would be on the chopping block. In the entertainment-based corporate culture of Disney, news has no special value except when it contributes to the bottom line. Where are you, Ted Turner? CNN is the most important of the many things you created. Buy it back. Then if President Bush decides to blow up the Baghdad Hilton, at least your old network will still be around to cover the war. Writes Ken Bodie in the L.A. Times today. Yeah, really good, man. Let's uh, let's just let uh, five companies buy up every radio and TV station, every goddamn newspaper. I think and we then can we'll get really, it down to three. Then, then we'll really know what it's all about. <laughs> then we'll get the truth.
How's Mo doing there? Is he? Oh, look at that. He's already in first place and zooming on up. So what do we say? About 70 phony votes? At least. 11.13 at 5.60 WQM. Tom Lehman loves the uh, people who listen to this show so much. That's why he created the Neil Deal at Hallett. Save big dollars on all Pontiacs and GMCs in stock. Just mention you heard me talking about it here on the Neil Rogers Show. Stop by Hallett Pontiac GMC, 134.1 South Dixie Highway. That's US-1. Across from the falls where uh, Bob Eisenberg continues to fail miserably and where every vehicle is marked with the lowest price. Mention the Neil Rogers deal and save even more. Check out the complete line of GMC SUVs, including the Envoy, voted by Motor Trend as SUV of the Year, and the all-new Vibe SUV. It's got the power of a sports car. And Hallett's also got a dependable, great selection of pre-owned cars, trucks, and SUVs. I think that Bob Eisenberg and Todd Reck and uh, Skippy all went to the same school. You know what I'm talking about? No. Pathetic. And if you've been turned down for credit by some other auto dealer anyplace else, have no fear because Hallett is here. It'll be no problem. They'll cut your deal, even if they never see you again. Get a Neil Rogers deal at Hallett Pontiac GMC, 13401 South Dixie Highway. That's US-1 right across from the falls open every day of your life, seven days a week. For more info, call 305-238-4040. 305-238-4040. When you talk to Tom Lehman, ask him, what is that animal that died on Bob's head? Hallett Pontiac GMC. We are professional grade. Live and local. This, this is 560. The radio's all yours. QAM. Eisner? Mr. Mouse? What the hell are you doing to me? What do you mean, sir? Why am I reading in the paper you're going to put a Disney theme park in Brooklyn? Well, sir, we're just scouting locations. Jesus, I'm scouting CEOs. You are killing me. But, but, but sir, look what we've done with New York City, oh. Times Square, 42nd Hang Street. Hang on. Remus! Remus! Turn off the vacuum cleaner, Remus! Get that bluebird out of here! Okay, boss. Eisner, but sir, look what we've done with Midtown Manhattan. 42nd Street is incredible. Uh, you know what? Publicly, I supported that, but you took all the porn away. You're killing me. I'm going through Gaviscon like Pez. We're just scouting areas. Calm down. Listen to me, Buck Munch. Don't tell me to calm down. We got lucky with Lilo and Stitch, $128 million. Now, you're trying to ruin the whole network. What kind of programming are you running? Hang on a minute. Remus, yeah, you've got bluebird crap all over your shoulder. <laughs> Clean yourself up, for heaven's sake. And turn off the vacuum cleaner. Okay, Good God. Sir, the network is fine. Why couldn't you come up with American Idol? Good God, you're still running James Bond movies. They're 60 years old. Why don't you just put Steamboat Willie on and be done with it? At least then I'd make a couple of damn dollars. Well, the, the movie division's fine. You mentioned Lilo and Stitch, and now we have the new M. Night Shyamalan movie coming out later oh, this summer. Oh, no, signs. What the hell does that mean? Stop sign, yield sign. you got to start swinging some of these titles past me. Please. Remus. Remus. Can't hear you, Bob. I know you can't hear me, Remus. You're still running the market, Twitter. Yes, I'm not, Bob. I'm running the market. Yes, sir. I'd be very careful the next time I started my car if I were you. What, what, what do you mean, sir? I'm about done with you. What? About done. What, sir? I'll put Hannah Storm in your job. But, sir, I'm You're sorry. terrible. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll put Remus in there. I'd like to be president of Disney, Remus. My, oh, my. What a wonderful day. <laughs> Get out of here, you nutbag. I love it. I just, I'm just going to play out the rest of the show. All right.
My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. It's uh, 1119. Get that bluebird crap off your shoulder, Remus. See, the uh, young whippersnappers, they don't know what that's all about. Do they? Sure. They keep repeating it. Everybody grows up with that. I see. Uh, this is from, uh, what is this from? Oh, Bush Watch. Bush's foreign policy manifesto, kill them all, let's God sort them out. <laughs> According to Bush and his GOP War Party foreign policy manifesto released last Friday, just in time for the Saturday morning news blackout, as a country we should shoot first and ask questions later. Morality, we don't need no stinking morality. Just got to soften morality up a bit to fit today's exigencies, right? This from the guy who promised that if elected he'd bring ethics and morality back to Washington. Right. All it takes for Bush, actually, is to redefine words, bigger words than is. One, imminent threats. Imminent no longer means knowing when the enemy will strike or even what the enemy will do. Imminent now means that the acquisition of weapons of mass destruction by our enemies must be stopped by unilateral American military action if necessary because these weapons inherently pose an imminent threat. The manifesto stipulates the purpose of our actions will always be to eliminate a specific threat to the United States of our allies and friends. The reasons for our actions will be clear, the force measured, and the cause just. But this is linguistic trickery. Instead of specifying the threats against which you'll attack preemptively, you assert vaguely that those threats will be specific. Instead of giving clear reasons, you assert that your reasons will be clear. Instead of quantifying the force you'll use, you say your force will be properly measured. You leave the rules vague so that in practice, by filling in the blanks later, you get to make up the rules as you go along, writes William Salatin. Two, self-defense. The manifesto says the United States will focus on defending the U.S., the American people, and our interest at home and abroad by identifying and destroying the threat before it reaches our borders. To justify unilateral action against such threats, the document frames this policy as part of our right to self-defense. But this stretches the meaning of both self and defense. Don't American interests abroad under Bush's definition include Israel's security? If our borders don't define the self we're committed to defend, and if the violation of those borders doesn't define the difference between offensive and defensive action on our part, what does, ask Salatin? Three, interest in values. According to the manifesto, the U.S. national security strategy will be based on a distinctly American internationalism that reflects the union of our values and our national interests. But the only thing distinctly American about this proposition is its pretense that our interests and values are identical. Nations choose their interests over their values all the time. They go easy on dictators to protect profitable commerce. They prop up friendly but repressive governments. The United States under Bush isn't much different. Our new moral compromises that were putting stability and order before reform. The manifesto gives familiar lip service to the importance of Russian and Chinese reform, but the whole point of the new doctrine is that reform is no longer primary. Fighting terrorism is, he writes. Four, multilateralism. The manifesto makes a show of embracing the United Nations and other international institutions. It pledges America will implement its strategies by organizing coalitions as broad as practicable of states able and willing to promote a balance of power that favors freedom. But what does this mean? If you aren't willing to engage in military action that in the view of the U.S. favors freedom, your inclusion in the coalition isn't practicable? This is unilateralism dressed up as multilateralism. We're happy to work with you as long as you do it our way, Salatin notes. And five, the point to be made about Bush's view of the world is that he can promise a morality that he doesn't plan to deliver, lie about his amoral approach to foreign policy, have his lies reported as truth by most of the media, gain the support of about 60% of the American people on the basis of distorting propaganda, and use his version of the law and police squads to keep the remaining 40% in line, preferably in compounds far from the action and away from the eyes of the media, while he loads his audiences with GOP War Party followers seen on the evening news as participants in our open and free democracy. Salatin concludes, the new world is one rationalized by Bush's manifesto, a world in which great powers wink at each other's misconduct, every threat is imminent, self-defense means preemptive action abroad, interests aren't dressed up as values, and cooperation means cooperating with the U.S. We don't know what history will judge harshly about this era, but there's a good chance it'll be the compromises we embrace to rectify the mistakes of September 11th. Wow.
germ of a message lies in silence over stem cells. This is in today's L.A. Times. James Pinkerton writes for Newsday. Millican Drackey sits in a wheelchair, unable to care for herself, unable to communicate. Her devoted husband, Morton, the couple will celebrate their 35th wedding anniversary next week, can only hope she understands him when he tells her he loves her. Morton Kondracki, of course, is one of the best-known journalists in Washington, but he's much prouder of his role in combating Parkinson's disease, which has afflicted his wife since 1987. Over the last decade, he's become deeply involved in efforts to energize Parkinson's research and medical inquiry overall. I am an advocate, he says firmly. That advocacy has been successful. Indeed, it's about to go further, rolling over President Bush on the issue of stem cell research. Last year, Kondracki published Saving Millie, Love, Politics, and Parkinson's Disease, in it, Millie emerges as a tragic symbol, a symbol to galvanize support for the next round of research, which Kondracki and most other experts believe will require the expanded use of embryonic stem cell tissue. And so the political battle is joined, although it won't be much of a fight. Embryonic stem cells are derived from fetal tissue, typically from a five-day-old bladocyst, a clump of perhaps a 100 cells, about the size of the, a period at the end of this sentence. At such an early stage of development, embryonic stem cells can be converted to any other kind of human cell and thus can be used to treat a variety of ailments including diabetes, Alzheimer's, and Huntington's, as well as potentially spinal cord injuries. No wonder so many high-profile victims of disease and accidents, including Michael J. Fox, Muhammad Ali, and Christopher Reeve, have made common cause on the stem cell issue. Put bluntly, in political terms, it's a battle between glamorous celebrities and a dwindling band of religiously-oriented conservatives, one of whom, at least in theory, is Bush. On August 9, 2001, Bush went on national TV to offer a compromise. Although no additional stem cell lines could be federally funded, research could continue on existing lines. Further discussion of the issue was blanked out by 9-11, but it is now cresting again. On September 22nd, California Governor Gray Davis signed legislation permitting stem cell research in the Golden State. Three days later, a parade of experts testified before the U.S. Senate about the deleterious effect of the Bush restrictions on medical progress. That same night, Nancy Reagan appeared on 60 Minutes 2 to talk about the impact of Alzheimer's on her husband, followed up by an authorized leak to the New York Times in which she lamented that a lot of time is being wasted because of Bush's strictures. A lot of people who could be helped are not being helped, she added. That was Nancy Reagan. And what does Bush have to say in response? Not much. He assembled a commission which Kondracki dismissed as stacked to the right. In fact, the commission was a model of fairness and balance, which might explain why it barely agreed with the Bush position, endorsing a four-year moratorium on stem cell research by a 10-7 to 7 vote. Still, Kondracki is correct when he says that its final report will have no effect at all in stopping continuing research. Meanwhile, the president hasn't addressed this issue at all since April. Bush is busy on other issues, of course, and that's the point. A president can only fight so many wars. Meanwhile, science marches on, defying politics. On January 16, the MD Anderson Cancer Center at the University of Texas announced that it had launched the first clinical trial to mifepristone as a cancer treatment. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Mifepristone is better known as RU486, why I like that better. The morning after pill that's been opposed by the last three Republican presidents. It's interesting that the chairman of the Board of Visitors at MD Anderson is one of those Republican presidents, George Herbert Walker Bush. From all this quietly looking the other way, it seems obvious that neither Bush worries much about the fate of bladocysts and fetuses. For religious conservatives, that may be disappointing news, but for most Americans, anxious for research to continue, anxious for cures, that silence is golden. Writes James Pinkerton in Newsday today. It ain't no bladocyst, it's a human life with a soul. Oh, I forgot, that's right. It's a living, breathing uh, thing. 27 after 11 at 560 WQM. There's lots of living and breathing things at the brand new pizza loft. The good news is they opened yesterday with their second great location in Plantation. Oh! That's the great news. We've been promoting and promising and hemming and hawing, and now it's open. Well, you've got to do it right. You know, you don't want to, like, make a premature evaluation. And the brand new pizza loft is right behind Walgreens. George is trying to, like, envision in his mind where it is. Don't you know that area out by me? 
I've been there a million times, of course, but I don't, you know. Right on the corner of Sunrise and Knob Hill. You got it? I got it. On the northeast corner of Sunrise and Knob Hill. Is that correct, northeast? Yes. And there's a Walgreens, and there's a little strip shopping center. And right behind Walgreens is Pizza Loft, and they're serving the same delicious, fresh Italian goodies, three different kinds of pizza, every kind of pasta dish you've ever had in your life, chicken dishes and veal and calzones and super subs. And uh, they're not doing delivery for a few days, he said the other day. Didn't Jeff say that? He said that. He called, by the way. I want him on the air. Is he on now? No. We'll call no, he called. Well, no more. so what did he say? Yeah, that if you wanted, he left the number of the new, of the new Pizza Loft, and uh, he said that if you wanted to... Uh, to put them on the air, you can give them a call now. Or no. I can put them on the air for you now. No, we don't want to do that. Didn't we just put them on the air the other day? Yep. Look, it's not the Jeff Cohen Show. We're doing our best. We give him a lot of free plugs. We want him to do great there. I mentioned the location 5,000 times. But let's not get carried away, Jeff, okay, because it's like one step away from doing a hockey show, okay, putting you on the air. You know? You're a good guy. Although at least he does the sex talk, you know. Yeah. Which is more exciting than uh, Don Cherry and Ron McClain. Hey, what's gonna, what are we going to do about Ron McClain? So anyway, Pizza Loft over there on University Drive is still going strong if you're in that neck of the woods between Griffin and uh, 595 in Davie. Hey, guess who lives in Davie? Steve M., I understand. Who? He's got a hell of a deal for you. But anyway, Pizza Loft over there, they got takeout, delivery, they cater uh, any affair you may be having. 954-916-8880 is their number. they got tons of free parking, and you'll find them right beyond Pier 1 Imports. But let me say it again. The brand-new Pizza Loft is open right this moment as I speak. Lunch, dinner, late-night snacks. The food is fresh. It's delicious. Everything made to your order. No soggy, mushy uh, spaghetti at this Pizza Loft. So give it a try real soon. And delivery coming almost any day. From the new Pizza Loft in Plantation. We are Sports Radio 560. QAM. Oh, no, I can't believe I just did that. You know what I just did? No. I don't want to tell you. Because you wouldn't believe what I just did. Anyway. Come on, let's go, let's go. We only have a four-hour show. Thanks for being nice to me today, Mo. Ah, don't mention it, Goldie. You're not going to get raped again today, are you, Mo? Nah, you know why? Why's that, Mo? Because rape's not funny. But I ain't going to be a mean man no more. If they think that's funny, that's fine by me. Wow, you really changed your way. Ah, forget about it. I'm turning over a whole new Fig Newton leaf. You have a nice day in paradise, my cuddly friend. Hey, Mo, look out for that truck. Mo looked like a shapeless pile of gold. To show my respect, I stole his shoes. I wasn't even cold before that bastard boosted my shoes. I don't want to say I'm glad. Outside of being a nasty old schmuck, he wasn't bad. It's a Mahaya. Oh, how is David's dead? I'll tell you one thing, for a dead guy, you sure getting a lot of phony votes. I mean, a lot of votes in our poll today. 115, he moved into first place with 80 phony votes. So he's got, uh, what does that leave, 35? At least 80 phony votes. Who was your favorite? As a matter of fact, I think we ought to instruct Eric just to take his name off of there. Or would it be more fun More fun to just leave it? Yeah, just leave it. Maybe we can get to a million by tomorrow morning. Let's get him a million votes. Come on, Mo. Keep punching that thing, baby. Punch it again. boy. Man. 440 votes on there, and with the biggest crank turnout I think we've had in recent memory on our poll, he was like languishing in last place with about, what was it, about 7%? Right. So if you figure we have like 350 real votes, 10% would be 35. Yeah, like about the 40 votes, I would say would be right. 
which means uh, 75 phony ones. Well, let's change it again. The new total is coming on there. Mo Howard, 117. I don't give a crap about the Dolphins, 110. Rick Weaver, 89. Bill Simper, 72. I don't listen to the games on radio, 59. Out of 447 votes, of which I would say like 350 at least are for real. The mother of this is in Las Cruces, New Mexico. The mother of that 10-year-old girl who beat her 4-year-old brother to death on the instructions of their stepfather was arrested for watching television during the incident, officials said on Saturday. What show? Natasha Guerrero, the children's mother, was arrested on charges of probably Oprah, of negligently permitting child abuse resulting in the death of her son, 4-year-old Devon Booth, said Las Cruces police spokesman Mark Nunley. Devin's 10-year-old sister kicked, punched, and hit him allegedly in the instructions of their stepfather, Louis Guerrero, 38, Beaner. The boy was being punished for bedwetting in New Mexico, for bedwetting and drinking from the toilet and was beaten late on September 21st and died at the end of the next morning. He died in Albuquerque Hospital on Monday, meaning a week ago yesterday. The complaint said the stepfather instructed the 10-year-old sister to punish Devon while the mother watched TV in another room. Now, let's see. If it happened on the 21st, that would have been like what day of the week would that have been? Saturday? We uh, tore up the calendar. You tore up the freaking calendar? Well, if the 23rd was... Huh? Yes, Saturday. On a Saturday. Well, so what show could you... Hey, I have no ideas what shows are on on Saturday. Maybe Sabado Gigante, if she was a beaner. Could have been Sabado Gigante. Might have been the show they were watching, and then uh, she was busy in the other room. The complaint said the stepfather instructed the 10-year-old sister to punish Devon while the mother watched TV in another room. He was arrested early in the week on charges of child abuse resulting in death. Not that they're being redundant in that story, but nevertheless. By the way, was she watching TV in another room? From the Dallas News, Presbyterian panel concludes late HP minister molested girls. Highland Park. National Presbyterian officials have uncovered broader allegations of sex abuse by missionaries while concluding that a late minister at a prominent Highland Park church molested at least two dozen girls and women, mostly in Africa, in his 40-year career. The denomination confirmed long-standing accusations against the Reverend Bill Pruitt, not Bill Hewitt, Bill Pruitt, as part of an unprecedented 18-month investigation that doubled the number of Mr. Pruitt's known victims. A report to be released later today called for the parent church to make significant policy changes aimed at preventing clergy abuse and recommended further inquiries. Well, this couldn't be in Dallas where they had that dog and pony show, could it? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. But, but this isn't a Catholic. Uh, this is, uh, is it Presbyterian? Presbyterian. See, that's why it was girls. <clears throat> I see. Bad luck bandit may have shot himself, then was hit by a van, Miami FBI says. <laughs> North Miami Beach. A bank robber may have shot himself as he put his gun away, then was struck by a van and a hit and run as he fled with his bag of cash, the FBI said yesterday. This is in the Sun Sentinel. The man needed help getting out from under the van, then hopped into a getaway car with the woman driver and escaped. Said FBI spokeswoman Judy Orwella. No one else was injured. So I guess his bad luck uh, didn't you know, go on forever. The suspect, who has not been identified, went up to a teller at the Wachovia Bank at 801 Northeast 8th Street in North Miami Beach around 10.30 a.m. and pulled out a semi-automatic pistol. He handed a bag to the teller, told her to fill it with an undisclosed amount of cash. When she was finished, he took the bag, was putting his gun back into his pocket, when it fired. Agents didn't know if he was injured. No blood was found in the bank. Well, I guess if there was no blood found, he probably wasn't injured, wouldn't you think? I would think. The man ran outside, was crossing the street while a white van hit him. Someone helped him out from under the van, then drove off. Late Monday afternoon, the FBI said it identified the van driver. The van was a hit and run, she said. So what happens to the van driver that hit the uh, getaway guy? They get a medal. A woman waiting in a red Mitsubishi Mirage picked up the robber, and the pair escaped. So what's this about bad luck? Hey, he had a couple little, you know, minor uh, yeah, contretemps along the way, but he got out. 
naming names or not from the White House note, uh, notebook in today's Washington Post. Osama's been languishing. Why don't you call up Jeff Cohen? We'll put him on after the break. Okay. Seriously, because I want to ask him how the opening went yesterday in Plantation, since I have such great interest in that, you know. I have a vested interest in that part of my hood. Osama's been languishing seven months without a mention in a presidential speech. When al-Qaeda's leader eluded capture in Afghanistan, President Bush gradually reduced his prominence in speeches to de-emphasize his individual importance. Now with Saddam Hussein, the villain of the hour, and the 9-11 mastermind's coordinates still unknown, Osama Yamama bin Laden has fallen entirely from Bush's lexicon. A search of the White House website indicates Bush has not made an unprompted mention of bin Laden's name since March 8th. That day at a GOP gathering in Florida, the president spoke of this bin Laden fellow and vowed we're going to find him. Oh, God. This bin Laden fellow and vowed we're going to find him. The last time Bush spoke the hated name in any public forum was a July 8 press conference in which he specifically was asked if he'd find bin Laden. Lately, Bush has avoided mentioning the evil one's name, even when asked about him directly. At a cabinet meeting last week, when a reporter asked Bush about Al Gore's charge that Iraq was deflecting attention from the failure to get bin Laden, Bush replied that Sodom is a true threat to America. Maybe he meant sodomy is a true threat. That too. This is quite a shift from the months after the terrorist attack when bin Laden was treated to daily mentions by Bush and colorful phrases such as wanted, dead, or alive. But now, with bin Laden's status unknown, invoking his name only reminds Americans of the failure to apprehend him. The president's silence on bin Laden has served a strategic purpose. Last year, nearly two-thirds of Americans said the war on terrorism could not be called a success without bin Laden's death or capture. That number fell to 44% in March, Washington, ABC, uh, Washington Post ABC News poll, and the question has since been dropped. GOP pollster and wordsmith Frank Luntz said mentioning the chief evildoer conjures up questions that nobody can answer because the government doesn't know if he's still alive. We're trying to declare a certain moral certainty... A certain moral certainty, Lund said, the effort is to remove all gray areas, and this adds a gray area. The removal of gray areas from Bush's rhetoric, oft observed since 9-11, has been qualified, this dissected, and broken down into statistical equations with Greek variables. A new study by the State University of New York at Buffalo School of Management analyzed 74 of Bush's major speeches and radio addresses from before and after the uh, terrorist strikes to determine differences in language. The researchers, led by Professor James Mindel, found that Bush's speech over the past year have contained more active words signaling aggression, such as overcome, dismantle, or prevent, or accomplishment, words such as leadership and strengthen, and fewer words conveying, uh, conveying passivity, allow, refrain, and submit, or ambivalence. Oh, and that goes on at great length. It's got, uh, I didn't know he knew that many words. The researchers found that all of these patterns indicated Bush's rhetoric has become more charismatic since the terrorist attacks. One possibility is that Bush is really more charismatic, they wrote. Alternatively, it's possible his charismatic personality lay dormant and unrealized until it was finally unleashed by the tragic events of 9-11. Still, another possibility is that Bush is merely responding to the needs of the American people who, in a time of crisis, seek out more charismatic talk. Is it a newly charismatic Bush or just some clever word usage? Speechwriting director Michael Gerson declined to discuss it. They ain't saying it. Those words were not in their vocabulary. 19 till noon at 560 WQM. we got the Mad Dog coming up at 1 o'clock from uh, Shula Steak 2. Hank with a full four-hour show today. Man, write that down. 3 to 7 with Rob Conrad between 5 and 6. Shiva's uh, Regal talking hardball with a crow at 7. Oh, God. And then we got the uh, playoffs. Angels and the Yankees, 817. Eddie K after baseball. And Joe and Mark overnight. If you love your home but you're uh, frantic because you need more space to do something, what do you do about that? 
Do what hundreds of other people be doing. Call Strictly Additions. Whether you're having a baby need another room, if you're converting a carport or patio and living space, if you went into business for yourself and want to make a home office, call Strictly Additions, and you'll be amazed at the stupendous work they do for you. They're your one-stop shop, your more space for your place, place with an absolutely worry-free approach to expanding your living space. Those no-shows by the contractors will never happen when you call Strictly Additions. Incomplete work, no way, Jose. No unexpected bills, no worries about the job not getting done right, and they take care of every single last detail. They drop your blueprints, they get the building permits, handle all the inspections for you. Strictly Additions has got that easy five-step approach to total customer satisfaction. First, they call to schedule a free project evaluation appointment at your home, where a project estimator will determine the scope of your addition. Secondly, they schedule a bid appointment in their convenience showroom, where you'll get a detailed proposal and an exact price for the work. Third, select your finishing touches, go to contract. Fourth, review the design and architectural drawings. And fifth, sit back with a smile on your puss and relax as your dream edition moves ahead on schedule with unbeatable quality. So give Strictly Editions a call today at 954-791-8100. That's 954-791-8100. They're licensed, they're insured professionals who do a stupendous job, and they serve all of Broward and South Palm Beach County. Check out their red and yellow pages or call them today, 954-791-8100. And be sure and tell them that Neil and Petey Lenny told you to call Strictly Editions. This is Sports Radio 560, QAM. Warning, we have mercilessly taken the following material out of context without endorsement or permission from those depicted. It is our ongoing mission to make everything that is good and decent look as ridiculous as possible. We hope we've reached that goal, or at least made you laugh. Friends and distinguished guests, simply put, President Bush can read only at the most basic level. I'm working with a variety of organizations to achieve President Bush's great goal, learn basic vocabulary words. Education is a top priority for President Bush, and I presented him with a children's dictionary. I'm proud that my husband, just yesterday, he said kindergarten. Because education brings opportunity, our public schools are open to every child in America. And President Bush, thank you for your help. And you're welcome. It's 1146 at 560 QM. Look at that. Jeff Cohen is on the phone, just like clockwork. Morning, Neil. How you doing today? Looking for more free publicity. I'm doing good. I need it's, the publicity, dude. It's, why is that? Huh? Why New is place, that? Like you said, you can't see it. We did it's pretty not, well, though. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people come and mention in your name, which is cool. There you go. Walgreens, good. Walgreens ordered. Did they? Yes, they did. Did Marcy come by for a free lunch? Uh, no, she didn't, but she's welcome to. I guess she's waiting for she me to come back. She's people it? over here, actually, to pick stuff up. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, pretty exciting. Place looks great, doing good. We're uh, tweaking our computers still. Pinnacle stayed here overnight. They worked like 20 hours straight to get us yeah. up, which is cool. And, um, you know, food's coming out the exact same. We have the same cooks and servers. That's going good. It's just a matter of, uh, so when are you going to start with, when are you going to start delivering? Uh, either the end of this week or on Monday. I want to make sure that everything's going smooth in the kitchen. And I'm afraid that on Friday night, if we're super, super busy, I want to make sure it goes smooth for our dining room and the people that come here. Now, I, you know, I drove by there when I was home. I saw, I saw the joint and, uh, the place too. But I, you know, it's hard. It's hard to tell how big it is inside. How, how compared to the other one? How big is it? The other one has 170 seats. This one has 150 seats. The other one's 4,500 square feet. This one's 4,000 square feet. Oh, that's pretty good. So it's a pretty good size. And, Excellent. Uh, 
And the anal, uh, the uh, pencil thin anal vibrator still going strong? There's no time for that, unfortunately. I see. You know? Tell me another good one. I, sir, I forgot what a girl looks like. Uh-huh. So, but, you know, that's one of the sacrifices you make. If it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Well, George will bring over a picture of Al to keep you going. There you go. Okay, thanks, Jeff. I'm glad, uh, glad it went well yesterday. Have a great life. Okay, looking forward to seeing you. Thanks. Come Go home, Patriots. Come home soon, okay? Okay, I will. Go Dolphins. See ya. Bye. <laughs> uh, I kept pressing drop, and it wouldn't it wouldn't go well. I, I think you had the uh, your thumb on it or something. Wasn't me. Anyway, it's 1148 at 560. That's Jeff Cohen from the brand-new Pizza Loft in Plantation Corner, Knob Hill and Sunrise, right behind Walgreens. You can't see it from the street. He's up against the odds there, I'll tell you that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. So it's all going to depend on oh, God. it's all on our broad shoulders, I'll tell you that, to make that man another couple of million so he can buy himself another $600,000 house. Now, these two articles you just faxed me, I needless to say, didn't have time to read either one of them. Okay. But, I mean, what I, I got all this other good stuff. For example, Andy of Mayberry morphs into RoboCop. I got that. Oh. And like, huh? You like that. <laughs> okay. The Iraq but, Little Secret article is very good. Okay. Nicholas Kristof, one of our favorite writers in the New York Times, Iraq's Little Secret. Baghdad, the White House is right that Iraq is by far the most repressive country in the entire Middle East, but that's only true if you're a man. To see how many Arab countries are in some ways even more repressive to women, consider how an invasion might play out. If American ground troops are allowed to storm across the desert from Saudi Arabia into Iraq, then American servicewomen will theoretically not be able to drive vehicles as long as they're in Saudi Arabia and will be advised to wear an abaya over their heads. As soon as they cross the border into enemy Iraq, they'll feel as if they're entering the free world. They can legally drive, uncover their heads, and call, even call men idiots. Iraqi women routinely boss men and serve in non-combat positions in the Army. Indeed, if Iraq attacks us with smallpox, we'll have a woman to thank, Dr. Rehab Rashida Taha, the head of Iraq's biological warfare program, who is also known to weapons instructors as, inspectors as Dr. Germ. A man can stop a woman on the street in Baghdad and ask for directions without causing a scandal. Men and women can pray at the mosque together, go to restaurants together, swim together, court together, or quarrel together. Girls compete in after-school sports almost as often as boys, and Iraqi TV broadcasts women's sports as well as men's. No one thinks that sports are just for men, said Nadia Yasser, the captain of the Iraqi national women's soccer team. It's true that my mother was a bit concerned at first when I took up soccer, but I insisted, and so she accepted it and just started praying for me. The point is not to be soft on Saddam Hussein, whose rash wars and policies have killed hundreds of thousands of women as well as men. Iraqi women would be much better off with Saddam gone, and in any case, the relative equality of women in Iraq has little to do with his leadership. Iraq has been civilized more than twice as long as Britain. After all, it was old when Babylon arose, and Iraq got its first woman doctor back in 1922. Then the Iran-Iraq war boosted equality by sending men to the front lines and forced women to fill in as factory workers, bus drivers, and government officials. Still, we shouldn't demonize all of Iraq, just as it's demon of a ruler, and it's worth pondering this contrast between an enemy that empowers women and allies that repress them. This gap should shame us all as well as these uh, allies reminding us to use our political capital to nudge Arab countries to respect the human rights, not just of Kurds or Shiites, but also of women. More broadly, in a region where women are treated as doormats, Iraq offers an example of how an Arab country can adhere to Islam and yet provide women with opportunities. I look at women in Saudi Arabia and I feel sorry for them, said Tuha Farouk, a young woman doctor in Basra. They can't learn, they can't improve themselves. At the Basra Maternity and Pediatric, Pediatric Teaching Hospital, 25 of the 26 students in OBGYN are women. Across town, 54% of Basra University students are female. Iraqi women who work typically get six months maternity leave at full pay and another six months at half pay. Subsidized daycare is usually available at the workplace. Female circumcision, still common in American allies like Egypt and Nigeria, is absent in Iraq. 
To be sure, aside from brutal political repression that is gender-blind, Iraqi women also endure groping on crowded buses and an occasional honor killing in which a man kills a daughter or sister for being unchaste. Honor killings typically result in a six-month prison sentence in Iraq. They sometimes go completely unpunished in other countries. A glance around any Baghdad street also demonstrates that Iraq doesn't have hang-ups about the female body that neighboring countries do. A man can travel widely in the Arab world and know about women's legs only by hearsay, but careful reporting in Iraq confirms that Arab women do have knees. In Baghdad, I saw women volleyball players who felt uninhibited enough to roll up their sweats. So as we invade Iraq for its barbaric and repressive ways, our allies in the Muslim world should feel deeply embarrassed that a rogue state offers women more equality than they do. Very good article by Nick Kristoff in the Times today. And you know something? I think maybe what we ought to do is pull like a little uh, fast one on the Saudis. Yeah, a little fake. fake oh, out. guess what? Guess what? Surprise. We're not attacking Iraq. We're blowing your ass off the map. Surprise. Because that's really, that's the heart. That's the where the yes, poison lies. That's the heart and soul. And that's where this evil, ev the evil doers conspire for fun and profit, for oil and dollars. But nevertheless, Jimmy Breslin writes in Newsday, city set up for slaughter. He says, I'm walking in a silent city. There's supposed to be noise that doesn't stop, but there is now none now. We are here in New York, the only place in the world that terrorists want to blow up. They'll take Washington as a second choice, but New York is the prize, the place Arabs will die for. New York is a place filled with Jews and blacks and islanders, and the government in Washington doesn't care for any of them or what happens to them. And nobody says anything about it anywhere. So yesterday, New York sat in silence, and here was the government in Washington out actively promoting our chances to get blown up. All through this World Trade Center turmoil, I wondered why the Bush administration was so openly frightened of questions about why nobody knew the Trade Center bombing was coming, or did they know enough about it and simply say, it's New York, we'll see what others, uh, we'll see what it's about when we get a chance. Let's not get into a turmoil. This is about New York. Who cares? They're not ours. New York doesn't vote right, talk right, eat right, worship right, do anything right that the rest of us do. Why the city doesn't even have a college football team worth mentioning? The whole state hardly has one. they got no men in the whole state. Look, here in Texas, we've got seven old big championship teams right in front of you. It's too easy to say that only some loud Arab in Karachi talks about Jews, the way this right-wing congressman army from Texas did just the other day. It wasn't enough when compared to what he is and people actually say. Call me and I'll recite it to the last accent. You don't need me writing or talking to tell you what they say about those of color. The psalm-singing Bush people want the thrill of the first-day invasion notices in Iraq without ever having to care about the catastrophe in New York that is sure to follow, if not today, tomorrow, if not tomorrow, then any time they get here. They don't need some huge device. A body bomb on Fifth Avenue is all they need. That body bomb and all the others on the streets after it, and the disease tossed into the subways. The administration's war requires hundreds of thousands of soldiers, enough planes to darken the skies, bombs as thick as rain, billions in armaments to give this Iraq and Hussein the beating that Bush and his people feel they must give. Washington is sure that can do anything it wants in the Middle East because the only place that will be hurt over here is New York, and New York doesn't count. Here are the choices for an Arab. Where are they going to die with a body bomb? Waco, Texas, or Rockefeller Center? Pascagoula, Mississippi, or the Port Authority bus terminal? Birmingham, Alabama, or Times Square? They crouch in the dirt in Cairo, and some of them know New York street addresses. They don't even know these low-IQ states exist. I still remember standing in the crowd on Broadway for the parade celebrating the great victory over Iraq in 1991. I remember thinking they'll do something back to us that was hardly an original thought. What was it, two years later, just a couple blocks over? On West Street, a huge bomb went off in the garage under the World Trade Center. The Arabs who did it said they were nearly trapped in the garage with a bomb and a truck stalled in front of their getaway car. They said they were terrifying of being killed. Then they got out, went over to the J&R Music Store, went up to the third floor of the classical music department and watched out the window. They wanted Tower 1 to topple into 2 and kill tens of thousands. They were keenly disappointed when this did not happen. 
Standing on West Street yesterday, I could still see them carrying Joseph Gibney in a wheelchair into the smoke and snow. People helped lift the chair over the fire hoses. Up in his apartment at Gateway Plaza, he said, thank God it's over. But then he and everybody in the room agreed glumly that it was only over for the day. And the Arabs who did the bombing were terrified of dying and then later to be alive. Of course they would try again. This group was different. They were willing to die, and die they did to blow up the Trade Center. Government agents and agencies costing billions of dollars said they didn't know it was coming. Why, then, is Bush nervous about talking about it and seeks war in Iraq to distract? Did somebody tell him something and he, too, discounted it because it was New York? And, geez, he didn't get a vote out of New York? Right, Jimmy Breslin in Newsday today. Well, he got a couple of votes. Live, Live and local. We're Sports Radio 560 QAM. This is Howard David. When I take my Feldine, I listen to the Neil Rogers 12 to 1 hour. Not George, because he's stupid. Yes. W wants to stop Hussein, even though no one will back us. Hard to tell which one is more insane when it was the Saudis who attacked us. W has to finish that pipeline. That is losing his patience. Order the troops to go give up their lives. For the world's biggest gas station The pipeline at all costs Why try it? The lives that will be lost Can't buy it There's more important things to do What the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> Outrage by white-collar crime Except for your buddies at Enron advice from Condoleezza Rice because she works for Chevron. Power and greed, you and that Dick Cheney think war for a pipeline is a good start. But leaders from all around the world agree you're a functioning retard. The pipeline at all costs why try it? The lives that will be lost can't buy it. There's more important things to do. What the hell is wrong with you? W, W wants to win day to day. That's the decision he's reaching. W's just as insane as Hussein. Won't somebody impeach him? Bubba one at five sixty WQMR big noon to one hour. So that Jeff Cohen uh, segment there was really pretty exciting, you know. Yeah. Are you awake? I'm or here. I'm right here. I, just, I didn't right want to comment about. I thought. Uh, well, Jeff why not? Why are you so non-committal? Why are you such a pussy for crying out loud? I love Jeff. I love him too. Don't I love Jeff of Cohen? Is he one of our longest standing sponsors and good close personal friend? He he sounded like he'd had been up all night or something. He sounded comatose. Okay, in fact I put that on a par with Denise Potban. And you notice even when we did those hockey shows, we sure as hell would never put Denise Potban on here to say all those brilliant comments he used to say like uh on on the uh Panther telecast like a lot of spooks in New Jersey. Things like that. Although he did have a point. Ever been to Trenton? No. no. So anyway, uh, let's see, M.W. Guzzi, G-U-Z-Y, writes on TomPain.com. M.W. Guzzi is a retired police detective who teaches criminology at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. 
He said, and this is the one Andy of Mayberry morphs into RoboCop. As a former cop, I've combed through the extensive coverage of the war on terror for discussion about its impact on domestic policing. I haven't found much about the inevitable consequences of this conflict on the local departments that police our daily lives. It is, after all, a categorically different experience to be greeted at your local airport by an M-16 toting National Guardsmen rather than a skycap. Americans have always been ambivalent about law enforcement. As citizens, we expect locally controlled populist officials who are responsive to our communities and mindful of our rights. When victimized, however, we demand coolly efficient professionals to ruthlessly enforce the letter of the law. Traditionally, then, the officer's role was an uneasy compromise between Andy of Maybury and RoboCop to understand how the threat of terrorism has altered this equation. A little background information is necessary. In 1878, Congress passed the Posse Comitatus Act, making it illegal to use federal troops to enforce domestic law. This act, which formally ended the post-Civil War era of, Re era of Reconstruction, served to codify the venerable American custom of civilian police. Military measures were reserved for foreign threats while the police handled domestic crime. That comfortable arrangement lasted until the 60s when local cops found themselves overwhelmed by urban riots. In response, larger departments formed paramilitary police units, PPUs. These elite squads were trained and equipped along military guidelines to restore order not by arresting individual offenders, but by employing infantry tactics on a hostile population. The movement toward militarization gained further momentum during the post-Vietnam era. With demand for conventional arms reduced by the war's end, defense contractors began to market dual-use technologies that featured both military and civilian applications. Assault rifles and armored personnel carriers thus became standard fare in major police agencies. The missions of the Department of Defense and Domestic Police further merged when the Reagan administration declared war on drugs. Suddenly, we were at war with a commodity, and your dope-smoking neighbor was reclassified from a local nuisance to a national security threat. In his book, Militarizing the American Criminal Justice System, criminology professor Peter Kraska notes that by 1995, 89% of police departments serving populations of 50,000 or more had a PPU, a 157% increase over 1985. Police reported nearly 30,000 paramilitary deployments in 1995, a 939% increase over the 2,800 callouts of 1980. And that was before the war on terror effectively eliminated the distinction between national defense and domestic law enforcement. Because the current enemy is an abstraction, military and police objectives have blurred into an all-encompassing but ill-defined effort to provide for homeland security. Though the military profile of the modern cop has evolved in response to clear and present dangers, the transformation entails potential hazard. In 1997, a Marine rifle team acting in support of the Border Patrol inadvertently shot and killed an 18-year-old goat herder in Texas. Remarking on that tragic mistake, Lawrence Korb, Assistant Secretary of Defense in the Reagan administration, observed the military, to put it bluntly, is trained to vaporize, not mirandize. Step away from that pie, Aunt B, and assume the position. Nice. Remember Aunt B? Poor Aunt B. How's she be, by the way? So let's take a look at that pool. Now, we've been able to determine there's 123 phony votes. No, 133 phony votes for Mo. So he's got 22. Your favorite Dolphin radio play-by-play -play announcer of all time? Uh, I don't give a crap about the Dolphins. 116. Rick Weaver, 95. Bill Zimfer, 83. I don't listen to the games on Radio 65. And Mo Howard David's got 22 legitimate votes, even though it says 155 and there's 133 crank votes. Sounds about right, doesn't it? I think they could get it over 500 before the, the show Oh, tomorrow. let's get it over a million. Come on, you guys can do it. Keep pecking away, baby. Large-scale vaccination called risky in USA Today. 
Scientists warned over the weekend that widespread vaccination against smallpox in advance of a terrorist attack could cause many more deaths than last fall's anthrax attack. In an era of uncertainty, it may be up to each American to decide whether to take the risk. Instead of sitting there with your finger deep inside your rectum ass, you're going to have to like uh, make your own decision, I guess. The warnings follow a report Friday that the Bush administration plans to announce a policy to offer voluntary smallpox vaccinations to thousands of hospital emergency care workers, health care providers, fire and police personnel, and ultimately all Americans in case an attack occurs. Federal health officials in San Diego at an international meeting of the American Society for Microbiology would not confirm their report on Sunday. A number of policies are under consideration, said Julie Geberding, director of Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. White House spokesman Gordon John Nation could thwart a bioterrorist attack, but in June, a panel of experts advised pre-attack immunization only for teams of health investigators and hospital workers. Unless there's a heightened risk of attack, the panel concluded, the vaccine's side effects outweigh its benefits. For every one million people immunized, one or two people will die from the vaccine. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said Sunday, about half those vaccinated for the first time suffer muscle aches or fever. Serious side effects were rare during mass vaccinations in the 60s, he said, and complications in people being revaccinated were even more rare. It's estimated that 64% of today's world force probably was vaccinated before 72 when routine smallpox vaccination ceased. But it's a different world today. Ronald Atlas, president of the Microbiology Society, said... 20 to 25 percent of those who suffered reactions were people who had not been vaccinated but caught the vaccine virus from recently immunized people. You ready for that? No. They were people who had not been vaccinated but caught the vaccine virus from recently immunized people. I heard about that, though. Today, with so many more cancer patients, people with HIV, AIDS, and others with weakened immune system, the number of serious side effects could be much higher by orders of magnitude. If someone told me we're going to be attacked tomorrow, I'd be the first to favor mass vaccination, Atlas said. But as long as the perceived risk is low, risking the death of hundreds, maybe thousands of Americans is not a step I'd endorse. We'd have to assume the vaccine will kill more people than last fall's anthrax attack in which only five died. The implications of vaccine side effects may not be widely understood, said Michael Osterholm, special advisor to HHS Director, uh, HHS Director Tommy Thompson. He drank water from a crick. Tommy? I would like to see universal smallpox vaccination. He said it would be the first time in history we would eliminate a bioterrorist threat. But at what price, says the article in USA Today? At what price? Well, I guess if you don't drink water out of a crick and you don't crick your neck too much, huh? Where did he find these yahoos? That's what I would like to know. Where did he find that cheesehead? Where did he find that big uh, buffoon Tom Ridget, huh? Stands there like a, like, a, like a goddamn cigar store engine. Ever see him and Ron Diaz together? No. no, as a matter of fact. God Almighty, where does he find him? Engine killer. Maybe he knows Defoe. Few hair, few lost hairs over barbershop. Here's some good news. Though Schwartz has got a good sense of humor. This is from the Boston Globe. Gail Seaton hadn't considered seeing the hit comedy Barbershop until she heard that the Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Al Sharpton had condemned the film for scenes in which a character makes politically incorrect statements about civil rights icons Rosa Parks and Reverend Martin Luther Kuhn, Jr., Seaton said she found it upsetting to think someone would disrespect Coon and Parks. Yet after she watched the film on a recent afternoon, Seaton, who is African American, declared the comments, No big deal. I laughed. I thought it was funny, she said after she left the Fenway Theater. I think it captured the way people talk and how some people just express their opinion on things. Everybody laughed. Some African Americans who've seen Barbershop, including some who are barbers, maintain the film is amusing, not offensive, and that statements made by a black character should not be taken seriously. 
in a comedy which stars Ice Cube and which is set in a barber shop in Chicago's South Side, Eddie, an opinionated barber played by Cedric the Entertainer, says that Park's decision not to relinquish her seat on the segregated Montgomery, Alabama bus in 1955 wasn't special and that her act was committed because she was tired, not heroic. He later calls King and alleged womanizer a hoe. Jackson himself gets dissed by the same character who also excoriates Rodney King and O.J. Simpson. Eddie is roundly scolded by his fellow barbers. Last week, USA Today quoted Jackson as saying, The filmmakers crossed the line between what's sacred and serious and what is funny. I could dismiss the comments about me, but Dr. King is dead and Ms. Parks is an invalid. There are some heroes who are sacred to a people in these comments poisoned an otherwise funny movie. Jackson said he hasn't seen the film. Oh! Later, Jackson demanded and received an apology from the film's producers, George Tillman Jr. and Bob Teedle. He also requested that those scenes be removed from future cable broadcasts and home video versions. The film studio, MGM, has declined to make any cuts and has announced that a sequel is planned. Barbershop has been the nation's highest-grossing film the past two weeks, making more than 40 million bucks. At Loose Ends in Boston South End, barber Brian Petty said he enjoyed the movie because it was wholesome and you could relate to it if you've ever been to a barbershop. And he said he wasn't offended by the comments about King and Parks. What that character said is just his opinion. It's not based on fact, Petty said. He was just stating his opinion like we all do. You can't be offended by one's opinion. If you do that, you'll be offended all day long. His fellow barber, Cleon James, agreed. You go, Cleon. People will say anything in a barber shop. The barber shop is where men go to express their feelings. They'll feel open to say whatever they want, he said. In the barber shop, a man will pull something out, uh, put something out there just to get different opinions and maybe pull something out. As for Jackson, the activist is just upset because he's been catching a lot of flack over what he's been doing lately, said Petty, referring to last year's revelation that the Mary Jackson had fathered a daughter by another woman. In the film, when a fellow barber warns Eddie that he had better not let Jesse Jackson hear his comments about Parks, Eddie bellowed a profanity. At the Fenway screening, Seaton attended a predominantly African-American audience reacted with cheers. <laughs> Willie Curry, edging up a customer at Lawson's Barber and Unisex Salon on Blue Hill Avenue in Mattapan, said he watched the film as art and could relate to the characters and situations. Outrageous comments on any subject are typical in barbershops, he said. I hear all kinds of stuff here all the time, he said. Sometimes they're just lying, sometimes they're just trying to be funny. They just want to talk. It's a place where people come to let off steam, and the movie shows that. No big effing deal. How do you like that? So, Jesse, stuff it, baby. Stuff it. Oh, I didn't miss an opportunity. Lighten up about 20 shades, you crazy old sparts of you. They're not buying your crap anymore, Jesse. Twelve minutes uh, after 12 at 560 WQM. In fact, maybe we could send him to Baghdad, you know? That's right. Doesn't he go abroad and solve all these problems? No, we could just, like, strap him onto the end of a missile would be good. Kill two turds with one stone. You know, mattress shopping, it's a piece of cake, baby. One easy phone call to our good buddies at Dial a Mattress, 1-800-MATTRESS. And they give you so much more than just great service. They give you unbeatable selection. All the top brands in the world, Sealy, Simmons, Serta, King Coil. They give you the lowest prices anywhere in the universe. And they give you a delivery deal that's unheard of. They deliver when it's convenient for the customer, for you. Any day of the week, seven days in the two-hour window that you pick. Like from 11 in the morning till 1 in the afternoon, from 12.30 to 2.30, from 1.14 to 3.14, etc. And they give you that 30-day in-home comfort guarantee so you can test out your great new name brand mattress the best way, the only smart way, by sleeping on it. So if you want to really get your back in shape and feel a lot better than you have if you haven't been getting good night's sleep, call Dollar Mattress. They'll be knocking on your door at no time at all. Call 1-800-MATTRESS, 1-800-M-A-T-T-R-E-S, or check them out on the web if you like at mattress.com. My and local. This is Sports Radio 560. QAQAM. The Hoover out the moon, man. Secretly, wiggle a little in the wick of Reverend Jay. You're gonna give me something to eat. Apparently, J. 
Jesse liked to play. Well, you're just gonna give it not feed me. He's a bigger hound than Richard Bay. I'm a woman. I got needs. Now all the papers say. Jesse's got a love child, yeah. You put the baby in me, Jesse. Will divorce papers be filed, yeah. And you play, you play. Likes his spicy, not mild, yeah. <laughs> He's in trouble, it would seem. Uh oh. Yeah. Was not MLK's dream. Ooh, damn, I'm hungry, Jesse. Hanging round the Oval Office with his hoochie girl. I'm for two now, Red. Expensive suit and brand new Jerry curl. Ooh, baby, you getting a little bit fat. In the limo, he gave her a world. You be touching me without feeding it me. It makes you wanna hurt. Jesse's got a love child, yeah. Got to buy the baby some shoes. Will divorce papers be filed, yeah. He be walking around in them raggy shoes. He likes his spicy, not mild, yeah. I'm gonna need some more money. He's in trouble, it would seem. Come on now. Yeah. Give me some of that reverend money. A big part of Clinton's team. Come on, Jesse. Yeah. Give me a little something, something. Was not MLK's dream. Truly one of the most unfit uh, characters to ever crawl around on the face of the global. Jesse, 1218 at 560 WQM. And guess what I see still at the bottom of our website? What? Red Cross. He's got no control over that. I had to talk with him. What do you mean by that? He doesn't go out and individually sell the ads and program the PSAs. He belongs to a service that does that called Burst, as a matter of fact. Burst? Burst. Yeah. And they're the ones that program all the ads and go out and sell them. Well, let me ask you something. Is Ellen Burstyn? All over the place. So, in other words, he can't control the crap that's on her. Okay, well, then let's not One out of a thousand hits, that'll come up. It just came up on her again. I just checked it again and it was all over the place, huh? You're very lucky. No, I'm not very lucky. I don't want to be involved in addition to which they won't take my blood anyway. The American freaking Red Cross. Diabetes? BDBDs? No, not diabetes. Don't you understand? The American Red Cross will not take your blood if... That's right. I see. That's correct. You didn't know that? Nope. Did there not. you go. But that's beside the point. I don't want to give him none of my blood anyway. The point is that the whole business with the 9-11 and what they did. But, you know, if he has no control over it, let's not blame him for that because he's got a full plate today. He's got to get the uh, book, you know. No, he has a full plate. Well, it was a full plate before he started digging into it. Forbidden truth. I'm sure that if, with some help from uh, Carlos after the show, he can get that thing on there. It's I know it's be up there. It's not on there. Yeah, well, I saw it earlier today. Maybe something happened. Well, wait a minute. Let me take a look. Okay, maybe I'm talking out of school again, you know. Let me just, one moment, please. There we go. Neil Rogers and Martha Graham. What the hell is Martha Graham got to like. I do like that Best of Meals, How I Attacked a Buffet. I like that. <laughs> oh, so, and can you imagine him to the appearance yesterday at Castaways? Yeah. Thinking that that was for real where oh, they I, get that Oh, I'm sure that, that a lot of people are trying to order that book, yeah. And, and I'm telling them, I don't know what you're talking about, and they were getting pissed at me. Uh, I don't... Let me just... One moment, please. Here we go. Neil Rogers and uh, Martha Graham. What the hell is Martha Graham got to do? 
I like I, and they, everybody else in this they're thick and above family. it all. They're elitists. They don't have to follow the same well. They may be, they may be above it all. They they got a right to be above it all if they claim to be. But then uh, in the meantime, uh, you know, put up or shut up. By the way, Whatever the page came up. Speaking of up, it did. Yeah, and there it is, right up on top. Forbidden truth. Well, right let, let me go back again, just a minute. See, I mean, am I am I hallucinating here? I think you might be. It's not on mine. How can that be? Try to close it. Try to close the the browser and open it again. Oh God, we don't have time for all this crap. Oh, and there's the L.A. Times is still on here. See, part of the problem is that all this uh, crap that's on here. Oh, and your program is performed in a legal uh, operation. Uh -oh. oh, geez, all the spam is on here. In spite of your ad aware, I'm telling you that ad aware, you can take that. That in forty cents will buy about a third of a cup of coffee at Wolfie's, and they're closed down. Ad aware, my ass. Okay. It, it doesn't do it. Doesn't get the job done. That spam is in the main. In fact, you don't even have to open the can. You can smell it. Can you smell it? Ooh, I smell something. Take it. <laughs> Okay, here, I'm trying to one last time. we got to get back to doing a show here. It's uh, it's on there. There it is. Told you. Oh, okay. It's on there. Forbidden truth. Boy, oh, boy, what a, what a project that was. You know what? I'm, I'm, I'm almost having chills and fever here just thinking about it, almost. And I think what I'm really thinking about is that hot fudge Sunday. You didn't think I forgot about that during the last two hours, I was hoping you? you would. Why is that? Because you're going to no, die. Don't, don't you understand... I tried to explain to you the rationale behind that. Instead of going out and eating a big meal, a big right. lunch, which I very often do, and then following it up a short time later with a bunch of like, uh, you know what I've been eating? No, I don't want to. Uh, I hate to uh, admit it. Klondike bars. Oh my God. I, I never even liked Klondike bars before. I never had one in my life. I mean, we got all those bits about Klondike bars. I never had one. Right. They look kind of. They look kind of boring to me. You know. Yeah, they're not bad. They're you not as good as a Dove bar. Oh, Dove Bar would put me right over the edge. We don't have <laughs> Dove Bars here. Thank God we don't have no Dove Bars here yet. Oh, I could go for one right now. Yeah, they're, they're pretty good. Mm, that In fact, you know who used, to, who used to bring me all those Dove Bars? And I, I was like, yeah, we had uh, here at the station. We had an ice cream guy. Somebody used to bring me tons and tons of Dove Bars. That was before I realized I was diabetic, or maybe I did already know, I guess. Wasn't it the same people that also had the fish food bars that were shaped like a fish, and they would bring cases oh, yeah. of them to the, to the station? Yeah, fish food bars. Here's your diabetic, Greenland, a bunch of sugar. And then we'll take him to that chocolate restaurant uh, that's sponsored. And the guy will force me to eat like 15 different dishes. I'll cover with different kinds of chocolate. Right, what was that place, the Gilded I don't want to know. I don't want to know. It was called the Death Palace. Instead of child safety, a foster care cover-up, writes the Palm Beach Post editorial yesterday. It says, since May, the Florida Department of Children and Families has been like a huge pot at full boil. The latest revelation blows the lid off. Four months ago, about the time DCF officials were acknowledging that they had lost track of five-year-old Miami foster child Rydia Wilson for 18 months, a grim report landed on the desk of then-Secretary Kathleen Kearney. Its conclusion, DCF is not providing acceptable levels of care for three or four of, of four foster children. Paul Vincent, former chief of Alabama's Child Welfare Department and a national child welfare expert, conducted the study. Ms. Kearney repressed it. To pry it out of her agency, took repeated requests under Florida's public records laws. The reason was obvious. While Ms. Kearney and Governor Bush were calling Williams' disappearance an isolated incident, the study was contradicting them. DCF paid Mr. Vincent to conduct the study. From February to April, his reviewers looked at 80 cases in eight of DCF's 15 districts, including Palm Beach County. The findings, he said, were among the worst he's seen. Taxpayers weren't the only ones stonewalled. Representative Sandra Merman, Republican in Tampa, chairman of the Special Committee investigating DCF, says she didn't know about the study either. 
The reason for the cover-up is obvious. The study would have embarrassed Governor Bush just as his re-election campaign was heating up. Four years ago, he promised to fix the foster care system in six months. Today, DCF is in worse shape. In June, the governor had to send social workers and law officers scouring the state for hundreds of missing children, many of them runaways, he said, as though that made them less important. DCF foster children are troubled boys and girls. Many are traumatized, if not mentally ill, after being taken from their parents and bounced from foster home to foster home. Last week, a 17-year-old girl found floating in a canal was identified as Marissa Carp, a DCF runaway from Broward. Her father, Gary Carp, told the Sun Sentinel of Fort Lauderdale that his daughter had suffered from depression and was violent and suicidal. He had fought for years to get her help. Did DCF provide the psychiatric care she clearly needed? In Palm Beach County, Mr. Vincent's reviewers found a 13-year-old boy living in his 19th foster home in a year. The boy, also violent, complained of headaches and auditory hallucinations, symptoms of schizophrenia, but DCF did not obtain brain scans for a year. Mr. Vincent did not even address safety. His group studied whether the system worked. Were foster children in school, in stable situations? How well did social workers deal with the problems that caused the agency to remove them from their homes? DCF got low marks in 12 out of 13 categories. The easy conclusion is that children were not safe. Governor Bush can't deny this scathing report or the cover-up. The public has a right to know, and the governor has a duty to take his responsibility. Oh! Excellent job, Palm Beach Post. And the people, the masses out there are still... Because his name is Bush. You understand they know who he is? He's another Bushmeister. Which, Beauty. quite frankly, ought to be all the more reason to vote against him. But it won't be long now. It's October 1th. It's only about five weeks away. And then you can go to the polls, and maybe your vote will be accounted or not, as the case may be. Which we got some stories about that, too. But practice, uh, precinct workers practice for November 5. You know, practice makes perfect. <laughs> 1227 at 560 WQM. Does this sound like you? Overworked? Uh-huh. Underpaid? Yes. Stuck at a dead end and a uh, dead end job. Uh huh. Well, if you're underappreciated, do yourself a favor. Pick up the phone and call the good people at Fast Train. Toll free. Call one eight six six Fast Train. The demand for certified computer professionals has never been bigger than it is right now, and Fast Train can help you achieve a big new career in as little as four easy months. Fast Train is South Florida's largest certified Microsoft training center, and they have four locations for you. They're in Pembroke Pines. They're in Fort Lauderdale. They're in Kendall, and they're in Miami. Fast Train offers convenient day, evening, and weekend classes. they got a full-time job replacement department with over 30 years' experience. So if you're overworked, underpaid, underappreciated, or just stuck at a dead-end job working for some putts, don't wait another minute. Pick up the phone and call Fast Train toll-free at 1-866-FAST-TRAIN. In four short months, just think about this, you can be on your way to becoming a high-paid computer professional in a career with great earning potential. In other words, a real serious fat paycheck. So take my advice, pick up the phone and call Fast Train, 1-866-FAST-TRAIN. That's 1-866-FAST-TRAIN. Train or check them out on the web if you like it. FastTrain.com. My and local. This is Sports Radio 560. QAQAM. Push. Coming up tonight on Inside the Behind, the true Hollywood celebrity music biography profile story. We take a good, hard, stiff look into stardom. They gave us one of the defining songs of 80s new wave. Now they give us a line of bullshit about why they let Burger King use it in a commercial that one time. They were modern English. Oh yeah, ask anyone. When we wrote Melt With You, we were thinking of, uh, of cheese. Yeah, that's it. Gooey and delicious cheese all melting on top of two old beef patties. I mean, come on, let's rock and roll, man. Tonight. You'll hear modern English frontman Colin Full of It Harris asking us to believe that he knew the song would be used in a commercial years later. When you think of it, a woman is like 
cheese, really. She's tempting and delicious. About 30% fat. All those years, he told me that melt with you was about how great the sex was with me. Now it's about a fucking cheeseburger. Colin's ex-girlfriend, Wanda Camembert. I just feel so cheap. It's like all those times he was with me, he might as well have been dry humping a sandwich. Finally, when confronted with the image of dry humping a burger, the leader of modern English stared down his demons and told the truth. <laughs> We didn't write this song for a commercial. We needed the money. <laughs> there, there, guys. As far as using your song in a commercial goes, you're in good company. With a bunch of other jerk-off sellout scumbags, most of whom are far more famous than you. It's a big, juicy, sopping wet look at show business tonight on Inside the Behind. But what about if that sandwich had that special sauce on it? I guess that would be different. 1232 at 560 WQM. I noticed we got a nice even number now. 130 phony votes for Mo on a poll. Your favorite Dolphin Radio play-by-play -play announcer of all time. So that cuts him down to 40, which is just about the right percent. Got it? Got it. I don't give a crap about the Dolphins. 131. Rick Weaver, 104. Bill Zimfer, 95. Uh, I don't listen to their games on radio, 79. And Mo will be having, uh, 40. 130 right to the uh, number of phony votes. This story you just faxed me is enough to make my blood boil. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. And then, of course, they definitely won't take it at the Red Cross or anyplace else. Adam who? Turan. Oh, Adam Turan gave us this story? Which one are you talking about? The one about Johnny Cochran. That's the one, yes. Well, I'll be god dang, man. You know, it's, you know what this is out of the category of? Schwarzer's out of control. First it's reparations and restitution and prostitution, and now Cochran says black coaches held to a different standard. Attorney Johnny Cochran, Jr., I guess he must be bored lately, huh? released a report yesterday that criticizes the NFL's hiring practice involving black head coaches and threatened to sue the league if it doesn't adhere to suggestions to remedy the situation. How do you like that, huh? The report called Black Coaches in the National Football League Superior Performance Inferior Opportunities was compiled by the Washington law firm of Miriam Scallett. It addresses the league's hiring and firing of minority coaches using statistical information compiled over the last 15 years. Calls to the NFL last night were not immediately returned. Dr. Janice Madden, no relation to John Madden, a labor economist, determined that black coaches averaged 1.1 more wins per season than white coaches and led their teams to the playoffs 67% of the time compared with 39% of the time for the white coaches. But Conquering noted there have only been five black head coaches since 1986, Art Shell, Dennis Green, Tony Dungy, Ray Rhodes, and Herman Edwards. Only Indianapolis Dungy and Edwards of the Jets are currently employed as head coaches. Black coaches are being held to a higher standard, Cochran said at a news conference. Now's the time for the NFL to step up and make a change. And wait till you hear this. To stimulate the hiring of African-Americans as head coaches, Cochran proposed that Commissioner Paul Tagliabubu reward at least one team each year for developing a diverse front office with a draft pick. What now? In other words, if you put in oh. a Schwarzer head coach, we'll give you an extra draft pick. That'll he also change. asked, what? That'll change the complexion of the game. He also asked the NFL to require team owners to include diverse racial groups when interviewing candidates for coaching positions. According to the report, owners can choose to opt out of this requirement, but to do so, they must forfeit a draft pick. Cochran suggested teams surrender a first-round pick for refusing to interview minorities for head coaching jobs and a third-round pick for not interviewing minorities for assistant head coach or coordinator. The creators of the report plan to talk to Tabby Abubu about their proposal in the next few days. Cochran said he's prepared to take legal action. Oh, 
we can litigate this. We can bring a lawsuit, Cochrane said. I think the NFL is reasonable. They understand that this can end up in the courts, and they'd rather not see that happen. But let's see if we have a dialogue. You can only litigate after you've done everything you can to negotiate. Cyrus Meary, whose name is under Cochrane's honor report, served as counsel in two of the largest race discrimination cases in history involving Texaco and Coca-Cola. We're asking for a fair opportunity to compete, Miri said. Cochran says he doesn't want to bully the NFL or make money on the deal. Our motives are driven not by personal desire or financial gain, but to correct what we see as great inequity in Americans' game, Cochran said. Miri said black coaches have less of a chance to retain their job than white counterparts. One bad year and you're out, he said. You're out. There seems to be a lack of patience as far as black coaches are concerned. Oh, my God. With all the problems that dark folks face in this country day in and day out, trying to scrape uh, you know a couple of nickels together to go out and buy some fried chicken and a couple of chitlins and maybe a little watermelon for dessert. And this uh, grave robber, this grandstander, he's worried about suing the NFL now to try to coerce them into hiring black coaches whether they want to or not. Man, oh, man, what is there that you can say about Johnny Cochran that hasn't been said already, huh? He's an asshole. Beside that. How many uh, pages are you faxing me now? hundred. Must be. Oh, and here's one that says you shouldn't knock San Mateo. It's the hometown of Tom Brady. Oh! Love San Mateo. Didn't know that. See, you learn something on this show every day. Tom Brady's from San Mateo, California. Oh, well, you faxed me a lot of stuff I guess I can use tomorrow. And, of course, tomorrow being Wednesday, we've only got, a, you know, three hours for uh, stuff for our bedtime stories. Because noon to one, every Wednesday, we do uh, Neil's Bits. Oh, and speaking of bits, don't forget the new book of Brian CD will be on that uh, on our website any moment now, right? Has he been in there? I've got yeah, and I'm holding the uh, the demo version right now. All right, excellent. You can How does it. it look? It's sharp. It's snazzy. There's a um, what do you call this? A dedication on the back from Rich Pactor, a scathing dedication, and it's great. And it's probably fun. to Paul Harvey Jr. ripping him an ass. No doubt. No so doubt. anyway, oh, there oh, is. And we also got yes from Boca Brian. Organ grinder with and without monkey. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it because you know what they say, the trained monkeys are on the loose again. That's what they say on the morning show. I was attacked by the monkey bun. He went and maimed my friend Punjab. Oh, no, I don't feel safe in India. Oh, I'd rather be in New York and drive a cab. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, my friend. Where did that guy get the information from, the previous call? Oh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Are the trained monkeys out again? Oh, boy. Here they, we go they again. They must be out. The trained monkeys must be Here out again. Here we go. We're at it again. Make no mistake about that. Where did you get your information, George? What information? 22 till uh, 1. What do we got? We got Amanda Chichulas today. We got the Mad Dog. Who's still going to be trying to get over that embarrassing, that shocking uh, whomping that the Dolphins took on Sunday in Kansas City? Uh, Hank will be on from three to seven, a full four hours today. I can't get over that. What is that? The first time in about uh, seven, eight months he's been on for four full hours. I think he's had a great scam going. Nice going, Humper. Rob Conrad will be on with Hank from five to six, and then we got uh, the playoff stuff: hardball with a crow and the uh, Angels and the Yankees. Eddie K after the baseball stuff gets out of the way, and then Joe and Mark overnight. I say let's get the let's just skip the playoffs in the World Series this year, okay? Let's let's get it over with already. It's boring. Terminal. Ponderous. And I still say, how come there hasn't been a major contretemps about uh David uh, what's his name there from the Marlins? Bell's his name? Samson. I, okay. And without Delilah. I had a brain fart there on Dave. Well it's easy to forget him. 
that phony attendance from Sunday's game just to avoid them the embarrassment of having the lowest attendance in the major leagues, even behind a Montreal Expose? Oh, my God, 28,000, my ass. What, what, a, what a sham, what a scam, what an insult. I don't, I don't know why they don't just do that every game, just make up some phony number to avoid the embarrassment, I guess. Who are you kidding, David Sampson, you idiot? And how dare you show up eight minutes late on Moe's show? What the hell's wrong with you? Yo, 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 let's rate Moe. 20 till 1 at 560 WQAM. Here's something that's good for you. It's called Oleomed. Inside that little capsule is some amazing stuff. Pharmaceutical-grade olive oil combined with vitamins and minerals and herbals. And they make different concoctions for different aspects of your health. There's one capsule that's designed specifically to help your heart's health. One to lower your blood pressure. One for your cholesterol. One for your prostate. One for your circulatory system, one for your digestive and endocrine system. There's a product for your skin and bones and even an oleomed supplement to help your mind, all using the benefits of the best, the purest, the finest, the loveliest olive oil that money can buy. And oleomed helps uh, men and women as well, separate products for each. It's an outstanding, exciting new product, and more and more steers be carrying it. Pick some up today. Oleomed at Whole Food Markets, Walgreens, including the one right in front of the brand new Pizza Loft and Plantation, Nob Hill and Sunrise. Pick some up at Sedano's and Navarro Pharmacies as well. If you'd like to get more information about Oleomed and what it can do for you, call their toll-free number and ask away. Call 1-866-OLEOMED. That's 1-866-O-L-E-O-M-E-D. And you can order their products off their world-famous website, too, if you like at oleomedamerica.com. Live and local, this is 560. The radio's all yours now. QAM. Season to hear thou. But I'm an idiot, and I think they're really great. I doubt that you can't handle one or two, much less all eight. Eight sounds that you hate. The men from the boys, they will surely separate. I'll tell you what they are. Guaranteed you'll go, I like fingernails on a blackboard. People crack their neck or their knuckles When I rub styrofoam together That just makes me chuckle <laughs> Eight sounds you can't stand Which you could tolerate if you were half the man I am Add to the list of eight A fork and a knife Scraping on a plate Scraping on a plate Here's one I really love You might want to try it Give me feedback in my headphones Oh yeah, that's more like it A little more, little more over there A little more Hey, sounds so unique now let's review so you can really, really freeze. Fingernails on a blackboard. When people crack their neck or their knuckles. Rub and styrofoam together. Cause it makes me chuckle. I like brand new sneakers on a gym floor. Raising an aluminum window. When a dentist is drilling my molars. That makes me say bingo. My boy singing on his record. You tend to 
fine china. If these sounds give you the shivers, that makes you a whiner. Hey, do you go nuts if someone bites their fork like this? Cause I love it. Here, I'll do it again. Do you have a nervous system left? How about the squeegee wiping a window while I crack my neck? <laughs> Suffer, you wimps! Suffer, wimps! Oh, wait! I got one more! Oh, and you know which one he left out? Do, 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 do. He left that one out. Remember I threatened to play uh, that eight sounds the other day? Yes. And I finally got around to it. 594 votes in our poll, some of which are real. And, of course, we can always spot the phony votes because they're coming in gigantic clumps and chunks. And it looks like they kind of gave up. They kind of, like, halted at 171 for Mo there. Until you mentioned it just now. Until I mentioned, well, no, I don't care about that because, I mean, it's pretty easy to keep track. You, you can do the math. After, like, right. 100 or 200 votes, you do the math. So I figured out if you subtract, uh, it's not that hard. 462 of the 594 legitimate votes. There's 130 some uh, phony votes. And so he's got, uh, actually, I was being generous giving him 40 votes because he was doing about 7.5% consistently all the way through. I think you should just divide by pi. <laughs> oh, speaking of pi, the sun can't set on this empire too soon, writes Robert Shear. I don't have, we can't afford to wait for this for tomorrow. No, we can't. The U.S. has no right to indulge in imperialism. This is from today's L.A. Times. He says, it sure smells like imperialism. That's the word historians use when powerful nations grab control of desired resources, be it the gold of the New World or the oil of the Middle East. Imperialist greed is what regime change in Iraq and anticipatory self-defense are all about, and all the rest of the Bush administration's talk about security and democracy is a bunch of malarkey. In the laundry list of reasons the Bush team has been trotting out in defense of a unilateral invasion of Iraq, oil is never mentioned. Is the fact that Iraq holds a huge pool of oil a pitting, piddling footnote to this debate? Is that Gulf War protest sign, no blood for oil, too cynical, even passe? Perhaps we should ask National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, who served as a Chevron director and had an oil tanker named after her. Despite her corporate connections, Rice is a scholar and should know her history. For 50 years, we and the British before us have assumed the same non-colonial posture, I'm sorry, neo-colonial posture vis-a-vis -vis Iraq as we do with Saudi Arabia and its surrounding sheikdoms in Iran. The Gulf War, fought to save U.S. corporate interest in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia, was only the latest example of this heavy-handed policy. Think Halliburton and Vice President Dick Cheney. The strategy is pretty much the same as that drawn up by the Romans. Find and support local strongmen who can deliver the goods to the imperial capital come hell or high water. How they treat their own people is not our business. We've never cared about democracy in the Mideast unless one of its dictators happened to fail to toe our line. This is why our CIA facilitated the rise to power of Iraq's Ba'ath Party and ultimately the succession of Saddam Hussein as its current leader. The first Bush administration supported Hussein, providing him with the means to wage chemical and biological war up to the day he invaded Kuwait and other of our client states. After his defeat, we became totally disinterested in the freedom of the people of the countries we had rescued, so much so, in fact, that Saudi Arabia was allowed to thrive as the world capital of religious hatred and the major sponsor of terrorists, producing Osama bin Laden and 15 of the 19 hijackers who gave us the 9-11 tragedy. The same contempt for democracy has marked our policy toward Iran that other member of the axis of evil we helped create. When Prime Minister Mohammed Mossadegh moved to eliminate foreign control over Iran's oil, the CIA and its British counterpart overthrew him in 1953. Despite our babbling about democracy, we had no compunction about replacing the elected Mossadegh with a guy who claimed the hereditary right to the throne as Shah of all Shahs. 
when the Shah dared to act in the interest of his people and his own bank account by bolstering the organization of petroleum exporting countries and the push for higher oil prices, we came to regard him, too, as expendable. Even our support of Israel has less to do with the struggle of a brave people for a deserved homeland and more with the usefulness of that country as an agent of our Mideast ambitions and a reliable ally in offsetting expanding Soviet influence in the region. With the end of the Cold War, we were at a loss for a noble reason to justify our heavy Mideast presence, which has been enormously profitable to some American corporations and industries that are well represented in this administration. Support democracy? We do subsidize Israel, the region's only functioning democracy, but our motives look less than pure when we fawn over cooperative dictatorships such as the regime in the United Arab Emirates, which forked over $6.4 billion to Lockheed Martin for fighter jets and gives us access to its oil. Having just fought to free themselves from one of history's great empires, this nation's founding fathers fiercely and repeatedly warned of the risks of imperial ambitions. Because of this, most Americans, whether liberal or conservative, grasp the fundamental truth that foreign entanglements destabilize, backfire, and cost too much in lives and dollars. Instead of exploiting our natural patriotism to fight a nonsensical war, our government should forego the temptations of empire. Writes Robert Shear in today's L.A. Times. I mean, you know, too many of these articles just make so much goddamn sense. But there are a lot of people out there too stupid to deal with the truth. They just deal on this gut emotional level. Oh, yeah, it's the good guys and the bad guys. They're going to get us. we got to get him first. It's interesting. He hasn't been getting us for a hell of a long time, isn't it? Right. But nevertheless, even after we chased his ass out of Kuwait back, right. uh, that's 11 years ago. When was he getting us, as a matter of fact? I, I don't know. Any day now. 1251 at 560 WQM. we got the Mad Dog coming up only moments away at 1 o'clock this afternoon with more alibis for why the Dolphins stunk the joint out on Sunday. It's only one game, though. Wait till this Sunday. Hey, and speaking of stinking the joint out, if your carpets aren't in the cleanest of shape, if they're not, if you're kind of embarrassed over the fact that they're looking so bad, here's the answer for you. The miracle workers at Drug Concepts, the best in the universe. I've been using them in my house for over 20 years. My mother uses them. My picky aunt uses them. Everybody I know uses them. Have you used them yet? Yes, I have, and I need them again, as a matter of fact. There you go. And, of course, in your case, the price will be right. Make sure of that. Whose account is this now? Do we know? Um, Troy. <laughs> Troy Stratford. Well, and like I said, he'll take care of you. Okay, good, bald Schwarzer. Dry Concepts, man, they're certified technicians. They come to your home right on time whenever you make the appointment. They roll up their sleeves. They dry clean your carpets, which sucks out even the deep-down dirt in the fibers of your carpets. Makes them look just like brand new, smell lemony fresh, and you'll have an amazed look on your puss like, holy crap, how can even these carpets look so sensational? They dry in just a couple of hours, and you're ready to rock and roll again. And Dry Concepts also do an unbeatable job of cleaning your furniture and drapery, spot dyeing, fiber protection, carpet repairs, in-plant oriental rug service, second to none, deodorization, and if you ever have a flood, complete water damage restoration too. And as far as peace of mind is concerned about a stupendous job at a fair price, they give you a written guaranteed price before they start the job. You can't beat it. So call Dry Concepts today. You'll thank me for doing it. In Broward, call 954-370-7778. 954-370-7778. In Dade or Palm Beach, it's a toll-free call, 1-800-248-5071. That's 1-800-248-5071. Clean today, entertain tonight with Dry Concepts. <laughs> Force Radio 560, QAM. It's just these guys, Nick and Suds and whatever the heck it is, and the people that call in, they're just like them, like that they were on the, uh, what do you call it, the weeds, and they're high, and they're, I mean, it's terrible. For years that I've been look, uh, listening to 610, and, and this here. Doi, 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 doi. Doi, 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 doi. 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 Doi,
Sound like they're on a, a wacky weed or whatever the hell it is, you know? What is it, the, the weed? <laughs> huh. 1257 at 560 WQM, the angry hound will be along in just a couple of minutes. GOP not supporting English measures, says the Washington Times. Denver, voters are embracing the anti-bilingual uh, education initiative on the November ballot in Colorado and Massachusetts. The question is, why won't Republicans? Fearful of alienating Hispanic voters, Colorado Republicans are either ducking the issue or coming out against it. In Massachusetts, Mitt Romney is the rare Republican candidate who supports the measure. The initiative is pushed onto the ballot by Silicon Valley software millionaire Ron Unz would replace bilingual education with one-year English immersion classes, after which students would move on to regular courses. Polls show the initiative is garnering more than 65% of the vote in both states. Even so, the list of opponents reads like a political who's who. Democratic lawmakers, teachers, unions, and school boards. Mr. Unz knows most Republicans are afraid that supporting English instruction would provoke a backlash from the growing Hispanic population. They're absolutely scared to death, Mr. Unz said. But it would be awfully nice if some Republicans would stand up for what Republicans have been saying all these years. Not that he didn't expect this. Four years after starting English for the children from his Palo Alto, California home, Mr. Unz knows the drill. First, he spends big bucks to gather enough signatures to put his measure on a ballot. He watches as the opposition racks up endorsements, contributions, advertising, and volunteers. In the end, it doesn't matter. On Election Day, his initiative wins by a landslide. That's how it happened in California in 98 and two years later in Arizona. And that's how the scenario is playing out this year in California and Massachusetts, with one big exception. For the first time, the anti-bilingual education measure has actually got a big-name Republican supporter and in Massachusetts of all places, while Republican candidates in conservative Colorado refuse to jump on the anti-bilingual bandwagon in liberal Massachusetts, Mr. Romney is gambling that the UNS initiative's rising tide will help lift him into office. How do you like that? Speak English, goddammit. What? You beaners. 
So anyway, the pool today, we asked, who's your favorite Dolphins uh, radio play-by-play announcer of all time? Play-by-play, that is. Of course, if we did on color, we know exactly who. Uh, all right. Right. With all due uh, respect to Hank. <laughs> but nevertheless, you're a play-by-play guy. Now, Mo Howard David's got 173, which we figured out, well, 41 of those are legit. Okay. So I don't give a crap about the Dolphins, 134. Rick Weaver, 116. Bill Zimfer, 103. I don't listen to the games on Radio 84. And the final tally for uh, Mo, who's got a zillion phony votes on there, is 44. Which is kind of appropriate, because don't you think 44 kind of rhymes with Mo? Bye, bye, bye! The Neil Rogers Show on 560 WQAM, Miami, Fort Lauderdale. I, 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 I. Some football programming to tell you about, whether you want to listen live on your radios in South Florida or tune in to our Listen Live feature here on the website. Monday afternoons at 5, ex-Dolphin Nat Moore joins the Hammer to talk college and pro football. Tuesdays at 5, either Dolphin fullback Rob Conrad or cornerback Patrick Sertain joins the Hammer to break down this past weekend's game and look ahead to next Sunday's 